Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is going to come out of Exodus chapter 23, starting in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Today... I am working off this understanding. If you are not equipped with the truth, then it has a great potential to weaken your witness and also to weaken your faith. And, and I see that to be very true uh, in this biblical account of the conquest of Canaan, that is, Israel taking the promised land by force. You know how I know that this can weaken your witness and even weaken your faith? It happened to me. <laughs> it happened to me, and, and uh, I've since learned it's happened to others. But I remember when I was trying to share the gospel, uh, you know, right when God had first grabbed a hold of my heart in my early 20s, I'd be trying to tell people how, how loving and kind and gracious God is and how that had been supremely demonstrated in the death of his son for our sake. But there was this opposing argument that came up multiple times 
from the person I was trying to share the gospel with. And it would go something like this. Yeah, but what about when Israel, the people of God, killed a bunch of people, including women and children, just so they could possess a big chunk of land? They'd say, doesn't, isn't that unjust and unloving? Isn't that more like what Hitler did than what this, the kind of God you're talking about would do? And, and that, by the way, wasn't the only uh, question they brought to me that, that uh, caused me trouble. The other one was something like this. Didn't God say that he would give Israel the promised land, but then after they took possession of it, they were invaded, defeated, and exiled. And, and they would say, even what we see today, the geopolitical reality of Israel, the, the, the state of of Israel right now is very small in comparison to what God was calling the the promised land. And I got to be honest, when when I heard these these questions, that's both challenging the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, because, you know, God gives them a land, fulfills his promise, but then just takes it back. Like, you know, is that a God you want to trust? And these were the arguments they were throwing at me. and, And I was shocked. I was shocked of two things. Number one, I was shocked at how much unbelievers knew about the Bible that I did not. Uh, but then I, I was also shocked because I just didn't know the answers. I had taken it for granted growing up that, yeah, the people of Israel took the land of Canaan. Cool. That's great. We win. You know, like that, that was just my mentality. And they, the, the, these people would ask these questions. They, they'd help me to see it from a different perspective of like, was that okay, or was that just super unjust to go in and take land that wasn't their own? I mean, even near here, by the way, we have the Trail of Tears. Like, Ross's Landing is one of the main sites of the, of the Trail of Tears. That's when uh, settlers forcibly removed the Indians from their native lands. And we say, what a terrible thing to do. But is it any different than what Israel did? And so for me, it not only weakened my witness, you know, uh, my ability to, to defend my faith and, and share the gospel in a reasonable way, but it also hurt my faith, at least for a season, because, you know, I, I went home to check on what they said, and sure enough, I read things like this, uh, Joshua 6.21, this is just the first of many times uh, in the Bible, it says, then they devoted all in the city that's all people, all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. I'm like, okay, yeah, that does sound pretty weird now that I think of it uh, from that other person's perspective, uh, that maybe this was an unjust, awful thing. And then, then, you know, I look in the Bible, and sure enough, Israel was exiled, first by uh, the Assyrians and the, the Babylonians, and you know, they, they eventually came back, but it was just a small remnant and just this, you know, shameful land, <laughs> no longer this glorious promised land. Um, and even then they were under other empires. And so if we don't understand the truth about the conquest of Canaan, it has great potential to not only weaken your witness, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to weaken your faith. 
Because as Douglas said earlier, if you, if you can't trust that God is good, you're probably not going to trust him for anything else. And if you can't trust that God will make his promises, fulfill his promises, and keep those promises, then you probably won't want to put too much stock in God. And it certainly won't help as you attempt to share the gospel with people. And so what we want to do today is understand the truth about the conquest of Canaan, what the Bible says, not just what my unbeliever friends <clears throat> said and the way they interpreted things, but what the Bible actually says. And, and, and the truth is good, right? The truth will set you free, <laughs> you know? And so we, we, the Bible has answers, and I want to look at those with you today uh, because if you haven't already struggled with, with this, you probably someday will. If you haven't already had someone challenge you uh, with these ideas, they probably will. And so I want you to be equipped both for your own faith and for the potential faith of others. So let's start with that first question. Wasn't the conquest of Canaan just a violent power grab and land grab by Israel? Wasn't it a great human, <clears throat> excuse me, a great human just injustice, much like what Hitler perpetrated? So here is the answer that we will see from God's word. Long, long uh, points today, but the, I wanted to help you understand it. This is, this is what we'll see. The conquest was divine judgment, not human injustice. The conquest of Canaan was divine God, God's judgment, not human injustice. The, the conquest of Canaan was not fueled by power-hungry Israelites. Rather, it was motivated and fueled by a just and holy God who is meeting out his justice. And so I, I want to show you this uh, here in a couple ways. First, the conquest was God's plan, not Israel's, and it was to be accomplished by God's power not Israel's. This is, this is a lot different than just a group of people saying, you know what, we, we, we're kind of a big people now, like we've grown in great numbers, you know, the, the people of Israel, and, and now we're no longer enslaved in Egypt. I mean, the next, be, next step should be, let's go get some land. Let's go take them from other people. Let's get us a good land. That is never, ever what you see in the Bible uh, about the conquest of Canaan. It is never the Israelites' idea. Exodus 23, verse 20. I've got it up on the screen if you want, or in, in your Bibles. God says, very first thing, um, as he's turning to this conquest, he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So, so what you get this idea of is this angel, which we'll talk more about the angel in a moment, <clears throat> but this angel is going to guard them in their time in the wilderness and to bring them to this promised land, a place that God has prepared for them. So, so this is God's plan, not Israel's. It's not them just being greedy and land hungry. You know, like they are simply following God's plan. But not only is it God's plan, it's also to be accomplished by God's direct power. So that, that angel 
that we've just seen there, that the, the angel will go before you. What we'll see further in this passage and even further in the Bible is that this is nothing less than the very presence and power of God. The angel is not necessarily the fullness of God being revealed to them, but it is the manifest presence of God and the power of God. And so I want to show you this. Um, we'll go next. Yeah, I want to show, show you this uh, in verses, uh, verse 23. Look at, look at what God, God says. <clears throat> when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. So th this is God doing it. Again, I could, I could show you. I, I should go back. The angel, God says about uh, him in, in verse 21, my name is in him. God's name, his, his whole character, reputation, the essence of God is in him. God says in verse 22, if you carefully obey his voice, the angels, and do all that I say. Well, which is it? Is it the angel commanding or is it you, God? Are you saying it or is the angel saying it? God, God is one and the same. And so God is now saying, <laughs> when, I send my, when the angel goes before you and I blot them out. Again, verse 27 and 28, I will send my terror before you. And will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. Uh, then finally, verse uh, 30, I will drive them out from before you. Y you getting the picture here? God is saying, this is my plan. I I I'm going to bring you to this place that I have prepared for you, and I am going to be the one to drive them out. I am going to be the one to blot them out. It is my plan, and it will be accomplished by my power. Now, I don't want to act like the Israelites don't fight. They do. They use their swords. They use their spears. Uh, they, they do all of that. But the main idea here is God saying, it's my power, not yours. It's, it's me giving you the victory. You, Israel, the people of God, the kingdom of God, are merely instruments or weapons in my hand. This is what's going on. By the way, I should mention, sometimes God makes this very obvious. If you've read through the Old Testament, uh, you know about those battles that Israel just reaps the benefits because they didn't really do anything. Even, even the first one, the very first battle, God makes it very plain that it's my battle. Does anyone remember what the first battle is when they enter the promised land? Joshua in the battle. There you go, Jericho. How did they have, you know, how was that victory theirs? Was it by their military might? No, God has them walk around these huge city walls for seven days, and on the seventh day, after the seventh time they walk around it that day, they blow seven trumpets. Number seven points to God, by the way. They blow seven trumpets, the priests do, and all the people are to shout, and the walls came tumbling down. I mean, if that's not God saying, this is my power overthrowing these people, I don't know what is. But th this is the, the pattern that we see. Sometimes Israel is, is more, you know, engaged. Sometimes God just says, I'm going to take care of your enemies for you. But it is God's power fulfilling God's plan. 
So it's not the Israelites. It's not, not their, you know, contriving of some human injustice. Oh, we'll just cast them out so that we can have their land. No, it, it is God's plan accomplished by God's power. But does that make it any better? Does that make it any better? Is it any more just that God did it? I mean, what right does God have to take land from these nations and to give it to Israel? What right does God have to command Israel to slaughter thousands of innocent people? And I threw in a word on purpose in that last one, innocent people, because that's generally where people are working from, as they say, Oh, those poor Canaanites. They were innocent victims of this slaughter that now we know it wasn't just Israel that did it against God's will, but they were fulfilling God's will, and it was being fulfilled by God's power against these innocent victims. So the second truth, the second reality we need to understand is this. The Canaanites were wicked, not innocent. The Canaanites were wicked, not innocent. I should mention that, by the way, all humans are wicked and sinful by nature. That means like when we're born, we are born wicked and, and with this propensity towards sin. And then when we come of a certain age, we all actually commit sin. And so there is no such thing as an innocent person before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Therefore, God can take the land and the lives of whoever he wants, whenever he wants, and no one can say a word. We, we just need to have that understanding. Like we, we think far too little of God and his holiness, and we think far too much of our own holiness if we think that there are any who are innocent and not deserving of, of, of death and punishment and things like that. But it is more than just, uh, you know, sin nature <clears throat> for, the, for the Canaanite people. Their sin was flagrant and glaring. We can look at even the, <clears throat> excuse me, even the commands uh, God gives them in verses 23 and 24. He says, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the nations, so I can be a little faster there, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. So what we can see there implied in that is these people worship false gods. Israel, don't, don't bow down to their gods. These people commit heinous acts of wickedness. And so he says there, nor do as they do. They commit heinous acts of wickedness. Israel, don't, don't, don't give yourself into these heinous acts of wickedness like they're doing. And so the Canaanites were wicked, God-rejecting people. And, and so God's justice is perfect. We, I can show you this in a couple ways, but the way I first want to do that is to see this pattern that in Scripture, it may not be every single time, but many, many, many times, God makes sure that we, the reader of the Bible, see his justice when his wrath is poured out. 
He, he makes sure that we uh, are, are, you know, worshiping him for his justice, not sympathetic to these poor, innocent people. I think about things like the worldwide flood that happened in, 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 in the book of Genesis. God doesn't just say, eh, I'm tired of these little humans. I'm just going to wipe them out for fun, these innocent humans. No, Genesis 6, 5, I might have this. Yep. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's just the first time God says uh, the state of uh, humanity. He, he keeps on mentioning it as he talks to, to Noah and all these other things. And so God is making sure that we, the reader, see his justice. The, the, these were not innocent people. These were wicked, evil continually. And then we see again later uh, with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, before God rains down fire and sulfur, Genesis 18, 20, God says to Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Then you not only have that statement, but then you have that, that narrative account of, of the men of the city. And anyways, God makes sure that when fire and, and sulfur rain down on, on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, that we're saying, yes, that is right for God to judge them. It is right for God to pour out his wrath on them. And that is exactly what we see with the Canaanites. God makes sure that we know. We see this um, once <clears throat> in Genesis 15. So this is 600 years uh, before the conquest of Canaan. Uh, the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. That's Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Then verse 16, and they shall come back here to this promised land in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The, the Amorites were a, a Canaanite people group. They're, they're one of the, the, the nations that, that lived in the land of Canaan. And what God's saying is, Abraham, I'm going to wipe out these people and give your offspring this land but not yet. There's this one group, the Amorites, who they have not yet exhausted my patience. They were, they were already a wicked people. They were already a sinful people. But God is saying, it's not yet complete. They have not yet filled up. They have not yet stored up uh, the, the amount of wickedness and iniquity that I want before I publicly destroy them before the watching world. But fast forward to the time of Moses, and God's patience is up. And this is what we read, by the way, uh, about, about the group of people. I left that green. Anyway, Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. You, you can read it all in this passage, uh, verses 4 and 5. But I just, I just drew this part out. God says, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that, that the Lord is driving them out before you. Mo Moses is saying that. It is because of the wickedness of the nations that God is driving them out before you. In, in context, uh, Moses is making sure that it's not because of, that they understand it's not because of their righteousness. So he says that. It's not because of your righteousness that God is driving them out. 
but because of the wickedness of these nations. These are not innocent people. There is no such thing as innocent people, but, but more than that, these are an exceedingly wicked people, and God is ready to pour out his just judgment on them. This is not human injustice. This is divine, right, and good justice. Yes, God is giving the people the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, he is doing those things, but he is also exercising his right as judge of the world. So that is the skeptic's first question. I just want to remind you, wasn't the, the, the conquest of Canaan just a horrible act of human injustice, kind of like Hitler or all these other uh, crazed nations that have, you know, tried to take the lands of others? No. It was an act of God, his plan, his power, and it is God's judgment. It is right. Now, I, I can't promise you, by the way, that the skeptic will love that answer. But the skeptics probably don't like the idea of hell. But if you're a Christian today, you believe in hell. You believe in divine judgment. So why should we be surprised when we see it in this case with the land of Canaan? It should at least help our hearts and give us confidence to respond to them. No, it, it wasn't an innocent people. This was a wicked people that God is wiping out. God is not unjust. But that brings up our next tough question. Did God only give them the promised land to take it away? <laughs> because they, they, they do enter the land, they do uh, conquest it, and, and God gives them the victory. They do take possession. But ultimately, they are invaded, defeated, and exiled. That, that's, that's where the Old Testament narrative goes about this conquest of Canaan. They possess it for a while, and then they don't anymore. It's taken away from them. There, some, again, are sent back uh, later, but it, it is never the same again. And so the question is, did God's promise fail? Or was it at least not a very enduring, durable promise? He fulfilled it for a little while, but then says, nah, never mind. Here's what I want to show you. Number two, God's promise did not fail. Rather, his warnings were fulfilled. God's promise did not fail. Rather, his warnings were fulfilled. Again, God's promise did not fail. He makes good on his promise. He does go before them. He does, uh, you know, blot out these people. He does give uh, the, the land of Canaan to them, but Israel failed to heed God's warnings because built into God's promise of blessing them with this land was also the promise of taking it away if they did not obey him, if they were to rebel against him. We, we see this a couple places uh, even in, in our text today, Exodus 20, um, Exodus 20, uh, through, sorry, 23, verses 20 through 22, 
God says this, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Do not rebel against me. Don't rebel against this angel. Again, my name is in him. For he will not pardon, he will not overlook your transgression. We see again in verse 22 uh, there, he says, But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. That's an if-then statement. I I highlighted those um, in the PowerPoint. If you obey then I will be an enemy to your enemies. And most importantly, I would say, um, God, God kind of gives a little explanation of, of what this should look like. Exodus 23, 32 to 33, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Don't, don't make a covenant. Don't make covenants with these people that you are to utterly blot out. Don't make a covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So God is giving them this warning. I've already told you, if if you transgress, it will not be pardoned. And here is specifically what you shouldn't do. Don't make covenants with them. Don't uh, make covenants with their gods, you know, engage with their gods. Don't let them dwell in your land. Don't serve their gods. And what does Israel do? Well, they kind of get lazy. I mean, they fight hard for a while, uh, obedient to God, obedient to this angel, you could say. But they get lazy and begin making covenants with the people of the land. They, They fail to utterly push them out, and the people continue dwelling in the land. And they begin to make covenants with their gods, to give their hearts to the gods of the Canaanites and to serve their gods. They, they, they rebel against their god. They rebel against their king. That is exactly what they do. This is divine treason. And so what does God do? He judges Israel just like he had done with wicked Canaan. They are disciplined for their transgression. Here's what uh, God had promised to do elsewhere in the the law of Moses in Leviticus uh, chapter 26, verses 27 to to 33. And we're just kind of grabbing a couple verses there. And this is all, all through there, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. God says, I'll discipline you, but if in spite of this, Verse 27, but if in spite of this discipline, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 33, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. So this is what God has promised. When this conquest begins, 
You need to continue in obedience. You need to uh, be holy, set apart, not adopting the gods of these peoples, not bowing down and worshiping them, not adopting the wicked practices of these people. Because if you do, I'll discipline you a little bit, and, and then I'll discipline you a little bit more, and I'll discipline you a little bit more. And if you fail to heed all of those warnings, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. I will scatter you among the nations. And that's exactly what happens. You, you can read through the Old Testament, and you can see God disciplining them over and over again. And they may have this like little time of repentance. I mean, that is the book of Judges by the way, you know, they drift away, then, then they, they call out for a judge, for a savior, God sends a savior, and, and then, then they turn away from God again, so God lets, you know, uh, another people uh, come against them, and they cry out and just over and over, but God, just like he had done with the land of Canaan, his, his promised patience ran out, meaning, okay, I've disciplined them over and over, they will not listen now I'm going to carry out the fullness of what I promised. I'm going to walk contrary to them, and I'm going to scatter them among the nations. Do you see that? God's promise did not fail, but he did fulfill his warnings because Israel failed to heed his warnings. The Bible has answers. We don't have to have our faith be shaken because what we actually see here is not an unfaithful God, but a truly faithful God who is faithful to all his promises. This is what he told Israel he would do, and that's exactly what he did. But you have to wonder at this point, you say, okay, so Israel failed to uh, keep their, what was promised to them. So where does that leave us? Where does that, that, that leave you and me? Is this promise of a great land, you know, null and void because Israel blew it? Does God have anything for, for Christians today? Does God still have a plan? Is God still preparing a place for us? We could spend way too long on this point. I will try not to. But this is what I want to show you. The conquest continues. The conquest continues. I can assure you that God's plan for his people to possess a land is not over. It still continues today. God still has a plan. God is still preparing a place, and it will still be accomplished by his power. It's in process. It will reach its final, ultimate, glorious fulfillment one day. And what I want to show you is that this is really, really good news for you today if you've trusted in Christ Jesus. So I want to show you uh, kind of the scope of this promise in Scripture, this promise of the land. First, the land was an unconditional pro promise to Abraham. The land was an unconditional promise given to Abraham. It wasn't like what was said to, to uh, Israel there in Exodus 23, that if, then I will do this. No, to Abraham... The Lord said, uh, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. 
God gives no qualifiers. That, by the way, was Genesis 13, uh, verses 14 and 15. God gives no qualifiers for that promise being fulfilled. And that promise includes the word forever. It will be yours and your offsprings forever. That means no invaders will be able to come in and take it away. No disobedience or rebellion will be able to rip it from your hands. This will be an abiding, everlasting, unwavering possession. Now this was said to Abraham, again, about 600 years before uh, the, the, the time of, of Moses and all these things are being said to him. So there's already a, a forever promise that there would be a forever land for Abraham and for his offspring. You say, well, that's good for Abraham and his offspring, but what about us? Well, that leads to the next point. Christians are heirs of Abraham's promise. Christians are fellow heirs with Abraham of the promise God had given him. This is the teaching of the New Testament. Uh, One example is Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You see that? God has promised an everlasting, forever possession of the land to Abraham. And now, all who have trusted in Christ for their righteousness, for their forgiveness, for their eternal life, are heirs along with Abraham. This this is amazing. But it gets better. The promise in the Bible, the promise, increase in glory. Rather than God ever taking away from the promise he gives to Abraham, he only adds to it. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that happens in many ways, but concerning the land, we see this. There's multiple examples of this in the Bible, but just the easiest one. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, not the land, not the promised land, the earth. They shall inherit the entire earth. Paul says the same thing in Romans. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the whole world is yours, Christian? It's all going to be yours one day. The place that God is preparing for you is the whole world. It will be a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells, where Jesus is our king of peace. And where there is no more sin, no more temptation, there is only complete worship and enjoyment of God. This is the land I will give you, the new heavens and the new earth. You can read about that, by the way, in Revelation 21. If you want to see more about the new heavens and new earth, Peter also talks about it in his epistles, this new heaven and new earth that we anxiously await But we're not there yet. The end has not yet come. The final victory, final judgment has not yet come. And I want to say this again. These are unpopular ideas. But when Jesus returns, yes, he is coming to bring his people with him. But he's coming with a sword. He's coming to inflict vengeance on those who do not obey him or obey the gospel. Those who continue to rebel against God, 
And I would say in addition, Satan and his demons all will be cast in the eternal lake of fire. Justice is coming, final and full. There will be nothing left on the docket. But until that day comes, here's what we need to understand. Christians are to engage in this current conquest. Christians are to engage in this current conquest. So I I told you earlier, Israel in, in Exodus 23 gets this amazing picture that God is going to, you know, go before them and he's going to drive the people out. But still multiple times God says, you shall drive them out. You have a part to play too, Israel. You're not going to just watch me. And this is the same thing that happens with us as Christians. I hope we all know that the great commission that Jesus has given us. And so this may be confusing. You say, well, how is this a conquest? So this is where I want to start. How is this a conquest? Instead of storming the gates of of fellow nations, geographical land areas, Christians are to be storming the gates of hell. Satan's kingdom is what we are to be attacking. But, But rather than killing people, we are to be offering them life. To, to transfer them, this offer to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son by faith in that beloved Son. This is what we are to be about. This is the conquest that, yes, we would inherit the promised land, but that we would bring as many people with us as we can, our neighbors to the ends of the earth, This is what we are to be about. Israel, by the way, was very very much warned that if any of the tribes uh, did not go to battle with them, uh, they would be attacked. That that tribe would be attacked. If they when they went into the promised land, if that tribe, say the tribe of Reuben or something, you know, said, ah, we're not gonna go to battle, you guys go fight, they were to be attacked. And it actually happens. Anyways, uh, I think about it with us. I'm not telling you I'm going to attack you, but I'm saying the, the importance is, is, is no less. Like, we got to all be in this together. We are an army going against the gates of hell. But I do want to give you some encouragement in this. Just like Israel did not go alone, neither do we. Acts 1.8 Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You will share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people, but it won't be because you are so strong or so brave or so eloquent. It will be because you have received power. If you become a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit and he is empowering you to be his witness, to fight in this conquest against Satan's kingdom. And so I hope 
that as we have opportunity, we will be like Paul. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to, to, to the Israelite and to the Gentile. This is everyone. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so I just ask you today, are you going to engage in this conquest? Or do you just want to have the benefits of, of, of how others will go on conquest and what God is going to accomplish for you? I promise you it is a glorious, it is a great thing, it is a wonderful thing to engage in this conquest with God, to see his power prevail. Let's pray. Father God, we are again thankful that uh, we can trust you and that your word helps us to trust you. That we can look at things like the conquest of Canaan that would uh, at first glance cause us trouble. It, it may not sit well with us that you explain to us what's going on. You explain your justice. You, you show us your complete faithfulness. And God, I am so thankful that, that the conquest is not over, that this is not all there is, but that you will one day give us the whole world in your presence. We will get to serve you and worship you and enjoy you forever on that good place that you have prepared for us. But we thank you, God, that you have made us a part of this conquest right here, right now. Not against people, but for people. Not to take their lives, but to save their souls with the message of Christ Jesus. So God, would you help us to be about your kingdom work? God, we don't want our neighbors, we don't want our, our family members, we don't want people on the other side of this earth to come under your judgment. We want to tell them about the Jesus who bore that judgment for them in their place for their sins, wrath poured out and then risen again victorious. We want to tell them about that Jesus by which they can become fellow heirs with Abraham, fellow heirs with us. God, we again, just as we started this morning, we just acknowledge that we are not worthy. We are not innocent, yet you have chosen to love us, to save us, to change us, and to use us. We pray that that work would not be in vain in our own lives, God, but that we would find our joy in serving you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.